Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, we've got an investment professional with us. Elaine Stokes is the vice president, co-portfolio manager of the Loomis Sales Bond Fund based in Boston. But Elaine joins us here in our 1130 studio. Elaine, thank you for coming in. Can we just start off with more of a theoretical question, passive versus active investing? Because that seems to be a debate that continues specifically in the stock market, but has now moved over into the bond market in a, in a really big way. Where, where do you come down on this and what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of uh, both of those strategies? Okay. Um, well, you know, I'm an active manager, <laughs> so I have to start. No, I know you're bi- you're, you've got that bias. <laughs> so I have but, a bias. Okay. okay. Um, let me start there. But, uh, you know, there's probably room for both. Um, but when all is said and done, um, I think what we're finding, and from our perspective, is the more money that's going into passive is going to, a lot of it is going into a new kind of passive, right? The ETFs, which are which are real fast money territory. And it's going to do things like it did to the high yield market last week. It's going to create more volatility on news. And that volatility is going to allow the active managers who are doing the research and doing the deep dives to take advantage of it. So you think that the high yield bond ETFs have exacerbated the volatility or caused it in the past few days. Is that right? I think, yeah, I think they exacerbated it. Yes, because it's so easy in and out when um, of an ETF where what had happened prior to this is that um, mutual funds were, were making it harder for uh, for timers to get in and out quickly because, hey, w- mutual funds want to invest for the long term. So were, were you and was Loomis Sales uh, actively buying specific credits last week and, and even, you know, today as the ETF sell? It, absolutely. When the market is trading off, you can you can expect that Loomis Sales is going to be a buyer. So that means that you think that this is a blip and it's time to have your list of names and which things you like mm-hmm. and to get them on the cheap. Yeah. And, you know, y- you have to remember when you're a true bond picker, which we are, and you're, you're research driven, that even if the market is going down and you think, I, I think this, vol- we think this volatility is going to continue. There's a lot. I mean, look at the number of news stories there were last week that were negative. Or, or created uncertainty. We expect there'll be continued volatility, but if you've done your deep dive research, you take advantage of each of these bouts of volatility to add a little here, add a little there. You're not spending your last dime yet. The, the notion that uh, as an investor, you hold this inventory and you want to hold it to maturity, I would imagine, unless someone's coming along and offering you a huge premium to what you paid. Is that would that be accurate? Or yeah, you know, we, we are very long term holders. You know, um, you know, easily hold bonds three, four years. Hey, I have bonds that I feel like I bought when they were issued, and it's twenty years later. Um, but it's a little bit more. You have to react to the market. Not many stories will last for 
the life of the bond exactly as they were, you know, the short bonds, the three to five years, yes. But when you're, you do what we do, which is oftentimes we buy the long bond because that's the lowest dollar price and right. that's where you have the most upside. So uh, we've noticed that the sectors that have gotten uniquely punished over this sell-off have been telecommunications and healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, are you buying in those sectors? Yes. Which, uh, which do you think has been oversold most? Um, well, that's a good question. Uh, it's really been which name and not... Are you willing to share? <laughs> not right now because we're still active in the in the space um but i think that you can easily dig through um whether it's in healthcare the pharmaceutical names or the health or the um hospital companies and they're all being punished and you can find the one or two that are going to be long-term okay companies just because something gets downgraded just because a company um is moving to a different phase doesn't mean as a bond investor, you're not still going to get paid. You just might get more carry along the way. Can you give any comment about this seemingly a trend uh, where governments and some corporates are issuing bonds 50 to 100 years into the future? Yeah. <laughs> um, we like to buy the long, low do dollar price bond. But we also like also like to have some visibility into into the story, you know, and a bond that is issued 50 to 100 years. I guess only governments could do that. Um, but, hey, we've even seen companies disappear, uh -huh. countries disappear. Right. Uh, in in this geopolitical environment, uh, that would make me really, really nervous. Yeah, it's hard to envision the world in, in 50 years, let alone yeah. 100. Elaine, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you coming in. Elaine Stokes, Vice President and uh, Co-Portfolio Manager of the Loomis Sales Bond Fund in Boston. But she joins us here in our 1130 studios. Lots of interesting things. Loomis is a buyer amid the selling. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we are awaiting testimony from Attorney General Jeff Sessions in front of Congress and here to give us a preview of what to expect is Billy, uh, Billy House, congressional reporter for Bloomberg. Billy, what are we expecting to learn or is this simply going to be a uh, an experience of uh, sort of partisan bickering? Well, what we're going to find out, and, and actually the chairman of the committee uh, in this hearing is, is giving his open remarks right now. Uh, the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, will speak momentarily. Uh, what we're going to find is that uh, Republicans are going to try to steer this conversation, this hearing, away from anything uh, uh, to do, if they could, uh, with the uh, alleged Trump cooperation collusion with Russian meddling uh, and to, to other areas, uh, in fact, into uh, investigations of Hillary Clinton and her husband. Uh, Democrats, meanwhile, want to stick to the topic and, and go after uh, Mr. Sessions for what they say are his inconsistent remarks about what he knew about Russian contacts. Billy, there's also a report that there are six Democratic senators that want an inspector general investigation of Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. Why are they doing all this? I mean, is this really substantive to the operation of government or is this just inside the Beltway uh, politics? 
Well, uh, on the uh, Ross thing, I think it's quid pro quo. I mean, they've, they've sat by as uh, Republicans, in, particularly in the House for the last month, have launched investigations into a uh, uh, 2010 uranium deal involving uh, uh, members of the Obama administration, including Hillary Clinton. They've launched new investigations into her email and uh, uh, scandal. And... Uh, and into uh, her dealings, uh, even with Benghazi still. So uh, I, I guess Democrats are scraping to find something to launch of their own. Uh, six Democrats, though, won't get anything done. They, they would need something from the majority. Does any of this end up sticking? I mean, because if these people stick around in Washington, they have to work with each other, at least on the superficial level. Does any of this create even more bad feelings and bad blood to the point where no one's going to work with anybody because they're not going to even talk to each other? It does create the bad blood. It does create uh, tensions that make uh, even the most basic bipartisanship difficult. However, uh, the impact on the uh, the American public is, is is unclear. Polls are showing that uh, the Russia collusion investigation, really at this point, even uh, special counsel Robert Mueller's probe, hasn't registered much with them yet. But we'll see what his findings are in the end. I'm wondering what actually could come from these hearings. In other words, is anything that will be said actionable? Well, uh, last night, the Justice Department released a statement that it would be looking into potentially uh, some Clinton administration, uh, Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton matters, including this 2010 uranium deal. Uh, that opened the door for the idea of a potential second special prosecutor, since Mr. Sessions himself can't get involved. Uh, that may possibly come out, of, and we'll see some discussion of that this hearing and just momentarily. Billy, you've looked at the polls for the favorable or unfavorable rating for members of Congress, and certainly they don't need any guidance as to what the public thinks about them. Why do they persist in the constant behavior that has given them such low poll ratings? Uh well, Republicans obviously heading into a uh, midterm election next year want to hold on to their majorities in both the House and the Senate and uh, are obviously worried about whatever's going to be found uh, uh, about the Trump administration that could help drag them down. Democrats uh, are the ver- reverse of that. They're, they're seeing, they're breathing heavy a little bit about next year. Well, I'm just wondering, Billy, about the special prosecutor process. My impression was that it was for standing politicians or big political figures. Can you sort of correct me on that? Because it seems like if they could open some kind of uh, investigation into a former politician that no longer has political clout uh, in any kind of concrete way, uh, is that is that quid, is that normal? Well, this uh, with regard to Hillary Clinton and her husband, uh, former President Bill Clinton, and he, uh, uh, this is something that the, that the, the Attorney General himself uh, may have brought upon uh, himself. He recused himself from all matters related to uh, the Clintons. Therefore, any investigation at all into wrongdoing by them in the past, by nature, will require a special uh, counsel or prosecutor. That hasn't, we haven't reached that point yet, but it's, it's what Republicans are drumming up uh, to kind of counter the noise over the Russian collusion investigation into the Trump campaign. 
Billy, is there any way that you can offer any anecdote or story about the mood that exists in Washington? Because not only do you have the attorney general testifying before the House Judiciary Committee, but also you have the uh, revelations regarding uh, Roy Moore, the uh, Republican candidate to replace uh, Jeff Sessions as a senator for uh, Alabama. And then you have this constant uh, sniping. What is what is the mood of the people who actually have to live this on a day to day basis? Uh, very negative, very negative. In the House, for instance, uh, uh, there's even uh, uh, upset on the Democrats' part that uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, who promised to have one of the most open uh, speakerships uh, in legislative processes in history, has basically closed down any uh, amendment system uh, on the floor. Uh, and uh, this has been countered by uh, uh, you know, absolutely no Democratic buy-in on on the the Republican tax overhaul plan. So, I mean, this is having real impact on legislation that needs to get done, and uh, Republicans are still trying to, as they did with the health care bill, trying to get it done, uh, even among disagreements of themselves. This all playing out against all these other weird uh, developments, uh, the Alabama Senate race, uh, Donald Jr.'s WikiLeaks communications, and uh, of course the collusion investigations of which we have multiple uh, panels looking into. Well, Billy, that's what I was going to ask you about, was we are all waiting whether or not the GOP can get through the tax bill. And I wonder, uh, does this hearing that we're uh, listening in on today, does this matter in terms of that policy? (laughs) You know what I mean? Does this sort of uh, lift up a roadblock for some of these policies, uh, the most important of which is the tax policy right now, getting through? Well, in, in one regard, I think it actually may force Republicans to put their foot on the uh, the pedal. I mean, to, to press down to get this thing done before something they fear might really bad come out about uh, uh, their party's uh, uh, elected president and uh, uh, and uh, the difficulty in getting anything done if uh, uh, parts of his campaign or even his administration come under indictment. So what I, I think is happening is, is this is speeding up the process for Republicans now whether they can agree amongst themselves what exactly they want in a tax overhaul bill by Christmas is anybody's guess. Right now, the Senate and the House are far apart. Uh, Billy, uh, you've also had the joy of having to write stories regarding Donald Trump Jr. and his uh, relationship with WikiLeaks and also the vice president. Could you just enlighten us a little bit? Yeah, yesterday, uh, Atlantic uh, broke the news about uh, congressional committees having uh, copies of uh, direct messages between WikiLeaks and Donald Trump Jr., uh, both leading up to the election last November and and afterward. This uh, was kind of startling because uh, they've denied that, including Vice President uh, Mike Pence uh, denied that last year. Well, it turns out there were some communications, not many. Uh, A lot of it was polite responses from messages from WikiLeaks by Donald Trump Jr., but some uh, some eyebrow-raising communications that may suggest some coordination, if not legal collusion. And it, the upshot was the vice president himself put, uh, put out a statement through a spokeswoman last night that he was completely unaware of these contacts. All right. Well, uh, Billy, I want to thank you very much. Billy House is our congressional reporter for Bloomberg. Uh, We're going to let you uh, get back and organized for this hearing.
All right, for success in uh, retail, we, of course, turn to Bert Flickinger. Uh, he joins us uh, as uh, he was just speaking earlier uh, during our program. And, um, of course, we're monitoring what's going on in Washington with the testimony of Attorney General Jeff uh, Sessions. Bert Flickinger, Managing Director, Strategic Resource Group. The topic, uh, Walmart and uh, its plans versus, uh, let's say, Target. Walmart will release its results, I believe, on Thursday. Yes. Right? And Target releases results tomorrow. Is this really a, a, a tale of uh, merchandising that's gone wrong, or is there a vision, a strategic vision that has just fallen off the, the sort of the radar here with when it comes to Target? Because they were hot, and Walmart was not. Pim, it's the old Janis Joplin, a combination of the two, as you synthesize so well. It's merchandising, it's vision, and it's leadership. Walmart has all of the above, and Target's really unbalanced in every area. Why is that? Why why is Target not being able to get its act together? I thought they were great getting into the grocery business and they were doing all kinds of things with RF, uh, you know, uh, radio frequency tags and so on. They were, but it it really coincides from um, the passing of Bruce uh, Bliss Dayton, the last of the Dayton brothers and the founding family and the last of the Dayton CEO. She had the best combination of family and professional management. And then with Ulrich and uh, Steinhoffel and now Cornell, you've got uh, the McKinsey, what I call co-monarchy coming in. And one of the reasons, ironically, Best Buy really picked up in the last few years is Target left so many of its best and brightest go, they got picked up by Best Buy. Walmart pushed out all the politicians from poor executive search and now has all the producers in. So it's like the days of Mr. Sam Walden, the founder from 1962. Doug McMillan, current Walmart CEO, was his last handpicked person. Doug was banished to China by all all the politicians who didn't want him there to be promoted since he came back with Greg Ferran and many other talented people yeah. and recruiting Dave Crisione from Amazon, it's uh, they've turned the tables and Target outsources everything and hence has poor service. They're, they've been out of stock on cough cold. And Walmart, like Kroger, has its own meteorologist, so they not only have cough cold in stock, but they have it on order. When I asked Target why they don't have it, they said, well, we'll email Robbie, the ETM. I said, what's that? They said, the electronic transportation manager. He'll see if it's in. And I yeah. said, well, a lot of people will be sick and we'll have to have to go to Walmart and CVS and Walgreens. Well, you know, the, the idea that Walmart has its own meteorologist is is amazing. Uh, it also has been uh, incredibly forward thinking when it comes to uh, becoming sort of a lender in many ways or acting in a financial services capacity. It's Walpay uh, is set to take over uh, Venmo and, uh, and even Apple Pay uh, in the near future just because it has developed such a following with its uh, clients. I'm just wondering from that perspective, how much do you think Walmart's going to earn from its financial services arm? And can you give us a sense of how long this has been in the works? I mean, how quickly has this popped up as a sort of dominant player? Uh, Lisa, all, all great insights as, as always. And uh, for Walmart, it's something they've been looking at for 25 years. And as you and Pim have reported well with Walmart's lawsuits uh, versus the banks, uh, GPC, general purpose credit card companies, uh, Visa, Master, Discover, 
uh, Amex for cheating up the interchange rates on the on the debit cards uh, and the and the uh, credit cards. Walmart's been looking at getting into financial services for a long time. Under this administration, it's more accommodative. But at the same time, it's Walmart doing good to raise the standards of livings for society. Because when I go Route 11, Route 15 in the rural areas of Mississippi, Louisiana, Boaz, Alabama, etc., you see payday loans, title loans for cars, uh, trailer homes, everybody else. People are down and out financially. So Walmart's going with the cheapest uh, loan systems to uh, make their financial circumstances better for their consumers, lower interchange rate so they can in, in turn uh, lower prices. And Lisa, to your uh, great power alley of strength on high yield bonds, Walmart's realizing that the vendors are really turning their backs on the reverse category killers and the category dominant retailers. So as the bonds trade down, bankruptcy toys are us, Trade down on PetSmart, Bonton, uh, Steinmart, Rite Aid. Walmart's becoming a shopping center unto itself and trying to capture the card data with the financial services you're referencing with the data and becoming the destination place financially, operationally, uh, and click and collect as, as well as base basic rhythm of retail and targets out of rhythm at this point. Bert Flickinger, always in rhythm. Thank you very much. A managing director, strategic resource group, giving us some insight into the world of Walmart and Target. Once again, Target will release its results tomorrow. Walmart is scheduled to release its results on Thursday. We have been talking about Venezuela, about the fact that uh, Venezuela put a uh, ex-drug kingpin in charge of debt negotiations, asked U.S. investors to come down to Venezuela to discuss these negotiations, and then very few of them, if any, actually went. Here to talk about this meeting, which lasted all of 30 minutes, is Ben Bartenstein. He's emerging markets uh, reporter for the Americas uh, for Bloomberg News, coming to us from Lima, Peru. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Can you just give us some color from this meeting? Certainly, Lisa. Yeah, there was lots of pomp, but very little substance from the meeting in Caracas yesterday. Uh, these debt negotiations, which were greeted with much fanfare, uh, President Maduro saying more than 400 investors planning to attend, and the government literally rolling out a red carpet for investors who arrived to the White Palace um, and were greeted with goodie bags filled with chocolates and coffee, served with juice arepas and cachapas, which are these Venezuelan corn pancakes. But inside the White Palace, there was very little substance to the meeting itself. The only Venezuelan official to speak was Vice President Tarek El Esami, who, as you mentioned, was designated, designated as a drug kingpin by the U.S. Treasury in February. He's been tasked to lead this debt renegotiation committee, and he spent the majority of his talk railing against the Trump administration, which has imposed tighter sanctions on the Venezuelan government, and discussing an international conspiracy uh, that he feels is meant to bring down the Maduro government. He did uh, pledge to continue paying debt, uh, both by PDVSA, the state oil company, and the Sovereign. That's been something that the Maduro administration has taken much pride in doing. But in terms of any significant proposals for how to restructure the debt, uh, there was none of that. Hey, Ben, when when does the government run out of money? 
That's a great question. That is uh, something that traders have been asking themselves for quite a while, Pim. And really, they have money as long as it partially it, it comes down to when lenders of last resort, China and Russia, decide that they no longer will fill those roles. Uh, so that's something the market's been looking at, uh, trying to decipher when uh, when they will, will no longer have an alternative option to bail them out. Right. It's interesting, Petavesa recently started tweeting potentially as a sign of them looking further uh, to Asia. They recently started tweeting in Mandarin. Um, it's potentially a way of reaching out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, when we start parsing through Twitter posts and the bag of chocolates to get clues on Venezuela's right. debt situation, it's really a, quite a time. Uh, of course, last night, S&P Global Ratings weighed in and said, you know what, Venezuela, you guys really have defaulted. I know that ISDA, uh, which is uh, the, uh, the the credit committee of ISDA, is deciding whether or not Venezuela has breached a uh, credit default swap contract. Uh, that still is out there. But as far as S&P is concerned, Venezuela is in default already. Can you explain a little bit about uh, what debt this applies to and, and why this matters? Right. So Fitch had declared Petavesa in default yesterday evening, and S&P, of course, declaring the sovereign in default. Fitch his decision came down to delays on principal payments for Petavesa's 2020 and 2017 bonds, whereas S&P's decision moving Venezuela's sovereign into selective default was due to delayed interest payments, which were actually due last month, but their grace periods expired over this weekend. But potentially, uh, based on the, the circumstances, legally speaking, there, this could be less of a headline risk than some might expect. There could actually be a lesson taken from the state utility company, Electricidad de Caracas, which was declared in default by its trustee yes, uh, on Friday, actually, uh, but actually is rallying significantly today, the most in eight years. Uh, and that being the case, mostly due to comments made by Finance Minister Simon Serpa over the weekend to Bloomberg, telling us that Although there were uh, some financial blockages in terms of intermediary banks, they have since been resolved, and the company intends to, to get that money to bondholders this week. Ben, uh, what, you're, you're joining us from, from Lima. What has been the reaction from other Latin American governments and business leaders about doing business either with Venezuela or in Venezuela? Another great question, Pim. Uh, Perhaps the, the, the most recent reaction that we've had is when Mauricio Macri, the Argentine president, traveled to New York and made his voice clear that he and a number of Latin American leaders were supportive of the U.S. ratcheting up sanctions, including on Venezuela's oil. Uh, so that, that's been something that's been obviously debated within the Trump administration. It would have significant impact not only on Venezuela, but on the U.S. consumer. And that's why perhaps the Trump administration has been reluctant to go that far. But uh, Macri's comments there uh, were definitely seen by some in the market as, as a bit of a radical statement to make. Really, a radical statement even after they're giving out chocolate and tweeting in Mandarin. I guess it's a, a trifecta for strange things that happen in the Venezuelan bond market. All right, we're going to keep watching. You're going to keep reporting. Much appreciated. Ben Bartenstein is the Emerging Markets America's reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Lima, 
Peru. You know, I just want to point out that PDVSA bonds that mature in 2035 have plunged today, really uh, dramatically, uh, $3 billion of debt now trading at 26 cents on the dollar. So it's been a really big market reaction. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.